Hi, today is November 12th, and I wanted to talk about what the news is. Put it into some historical context. News is actually a really old term, and it derives, perhaps not surprisingly, from the word new. And it refers to anything that is new, that is recent, that's current. And that's probably why today we associate the news with current events. So the news is different, right, from what historians do, because, well, time. We don't deal with current events. But we deal with things that are relatively close to current events and, and that are related to them. But very often, the time that passes between the novelty of the event, you know, when it happens, and our analysis, that's really what distinguishes the news from an analysis of what happened. And certainly, that's what distinguishes the news, even news that includes an analysis from what historians do. Now, the more time passes between an event and something being written about it, the more facts about it can get lost, and the more new facts can be added. And the more the analysis will reflect the time in which it was written, more so than the time when the event happened. This is not unlike what Hilary Mantel, whom I mentioned in Module 1, was referring to <clears throat> when she talked about the sieve of history, right? Some things remain for us to learn from. Many are gone forever. And the more we wait, the more time passes between something happening and us writing about it, the more we will lose. All this is to say that, as Schrodinger's cat would tell you, you can't both witness the event and report on it. Because by the time you're reporting on it, it's no more. So what you're writing about is a memory, and, well, memories can sometimes fail us. So getting back to the matter at hand, right, time and speed are critical in our conception of what the news is. Now, some of you are noticing when you're doing primary source research that some articles, newspaper articles that you read and refer to include a note <clears throat> that says, by special cable for, and then the name of a newspaper or a wire, like the Associated Press. Now that special cable four is an actual transatlantic cable that was transmitted, that, that essentially transmitted the news from when it happened to where it needed to be reported on. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Apologies. So the news had been typed and then tapped in code to get through the cable. This was the fastest way to get information from one part of the world to the other. The message would be received on the other end of the cable and then kind of transmitted again via wire to the office where someone would translate the code into words. And those words would make it into the print edition of the paper that you now can see digitally reproduced in the online archives of the Library of Congress or wherever it is that you look. This was all much faster than writing the article and sending it by mail, which would probably still be transported by ship if we're thinking about 100 years ago or have to be mailed by a plane before the internet. And so being able to transmit words through code and then having the code transmitted via cable allowed information to flow much faster. But news is not just speed. It's, it's also content. And the concern with transmitting important information that which you know sort of con, you know, governments are always concerned about is that who would be able to control who controlled what information was sent so for example the roman roads were built yes to transport goods and people 
But really what the Roman Empire needed, you know, and soldiers, but the Roman Empire needed those roads for us to transmit information about its, just sort of the, the, the parts of the world that it controlled. Japan, similarly, has a long history of developing postal networks. It started them sort of about 1,500 years ago. The information at that time literally relied on runners, people who ran between stations along the delivery network. Now, this was initially only used by the government because the government would be the only institution that could afford and for whom information was so important. But eventually, private companies realized that people and businesses would pay to transport information the same way. And so the, the, those postal networks expanded beyond just transporting information for the governments. In Europe, in the Middle Ages, runners also connected between kind of important trading networks. The, the Hanseatic lead, which was in northern Germany, connected itself to Bruges, which is in current-day Belgium, and you could sort of get information from Hamburg to Bruges in, in two months, and all the way to Venice. And it, it did that in order to share information about goods and the prices of goods, right? So this is in, 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 16th, in the Middle Ages, in the 15th, 16th century, in order for prices to be, well, accurate, you needed to have information about those prices, and they would use runners to, transfer, to transport that information. Now, the business concerns, as well as political news, are at the origin of the first subscription newsletter in 16th century Venice, actually. And that newsletter was sponsored by local authorities, because governments care about information, but also by banks and religious authorities, because news has value. And so if you can figure out how to transport it, you will, you, you will have power. The development of postal services brings out of this need to move information and to keep governments and merchants informed. So, for example, the Turn and Taxis family became nobility in, in the German Reich in the 14th century precisely because they knew how to manage postal connections. And they, you know, essentially leveraged these ancestral connections they had to the northern sort of Italy Tassi family who'd been running small-scale postal services since the 12th century. So people have been essentially running postal services for, you know, at least a thousand years and probably significantly since before that. But we, they wouldn't be called postal services. They, 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 they probably had other names. But I, that is far outside of my field. But by the way, Taxis, like taxi cabs, don't get their name from the Turner Taxis family. Um, that actually, the etymology of taxis probably comes all the way from, um, from the Greek. And the, the taxis sort of means to keep things in sequence. But it might also come from the German word for charge. But, but anyway, that I digress. We, we don't need to talk about that. We still haven't quite defined what the news is. I've given you some historical context. but. We now know that it depends on speed, and it is part of what governments need and want to be able to transmit. But when you get the news, what does it mean? What do we mean by that? Well, there's a saying that dog bites man is not news, but man bites dog is. So there's an element of the exceptional, of the sordid, of the unexpected in what makes news news. So in most places, Newspapers can't publish daily newspapers that include absolutely everything that happened in the last 24 hours because it would be too much. 
So newspapers need to make decisions about which stories to print and essentially which stories will sell. So that's one of the reasons why Man Bites Dog is going to make it into the news and Dog Bites Man won't. Now, some newspapers are private, but not all newspapers are private. In fact, in many countries, there are only official state news agencies. There are, uh, in many countries, there's actually a mix of public and private news agencies. And then in other places, the private ones are the ones that align themselves with governments or with the opposition, essentially taking part, taking sort of becoming part of the debate. And others will be private and be, try to be neutral and unbiased. Neutrality is a challenge when you're reporting the news. Even if you try to be neutral, it's impossible to have seen everything that happened, to get all the sources, to interview everyone that was involved, right? Neutrality, in fact, I would say is not possible. What is possible is to be explicit about your bias, right? But that doesn't mean that news agencies shouldn't try to get as close as possible to some version of neutrality, or at least cover their bases when they are reporting day-to-day events. In fact, in some countries, there are explicit rules about how much time and how much space each party's political advertising can take up. The United States used to have a rule like this. It was called the Fairness Doctrine of the United States Federal Communications Commission. And it was introduced in 1949. And it was a policy that required that the holders of broadcast licenses would, would both sort of present controversial issues um, of public importance, but do it in a balanced way. And they wanted, they, they, the fairness doctrine required that they do so in a way that was, that fairly reflected differing viewpoints. And the courts that established this doctrine reasoned that the scarcity of the broadcast spectrum, right, that, that, that limited how many airwaves were, were available to any television uh, station created the need for that doctrine. So the Fairness Doctrine had two basic elements. One, it required broadcasters to devote some of their airtime to discussing controversial matters of public interest and to air contrasting views regarding those matters. Stations had were given, you know, enormous latitude as to how to provide contrasting views, but they had to provide it. They could do it through news segments. They could do it through public affairs shows, through editorials. The doctor didn't even require equal time for opposing views, but it required that the contrasting viewpoints be presented. That is no longer the case, and you might be wondering, well, what happened? Well, under pressure from freedom of speech advocates starting in 1985, the FCC finally abolished the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. The argument was that since the broadcast spectrum had grown so much, the original reason for it to exist no longer held. And instead, what the Fairness Doctrine essentially did and I'm quoting here, the intrusion by the government into the content of programming occasioned by the enforcement of the Fairness Doctrine restricts the journalistic freedom of broadcasters and actually inhibits the presentation of controversial issues of public importance to the detriment of the public and the degradation of the editorial prerogative of broadcast journalists. So what it's saying here is that since there's so much spectrum, so so there's no limit to how many stations there are and how many viewpoints can be expressed, holding stations to that fairness doctrine limits the amount of controversial um, and uh, issues that can be presented. So it's it's an interesting twist. So essentially what it's saying is that we can now have television channels for each opposing 
viewpoint. We don't have to have those viewpoints represented by in 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 the sort of in one channel. Uh, you know, we could argue this because essentially that's where we are right now, where each channel presents their own version of reality. Um, but that don't don't let don't let me sort of get lost in that just yet. So, for example, that's not it's not the case everywhere. Right? In the United Kingdom, the government still regulates the content of its broadcast media. The body that does that is called the Office of Communications, or Ofcom for short. And, and in the UK, broadcasting has always been regulated by a body that is independent of the government and also independent of the broadcasters. In the UK, it regulates and rules on three different areas. It rules on accuracy, on bias, and on impartiality. And Ofcom regulates television news in particular so that TV journalists have a requirement under the law to be objective and non-political. Now, if any of you have consumed any British media, have read British newspapers, you will know that this rule only applies to broadcast media, right? So the BBC is held to this. But British print media is notoriously partisan and notoriously inflammatory. And maybe it goes back to, it's sort of conceptually, to the origin of the FCC fairness doctrine, right? The concern over this equal time is because of the limited access to broadband spectrum for TV media. But print, which predates television, was never inaccessible. So in a sense, for the Brits, like, go ahead, have it, you know, print all you want. Now, in other parts of the world, things run differently. In China, for example, um, there are major Chinese media groups, the Xinhua News Agency, China Central Television, China National Radio, newspapers like the China Daily, the People's Daily, Global Times, that are all state-owned and controlled by the Chinese authorities. China has a propaganda department, um, or at least it's a Chinese Communist Party propaganda department, and that one actually sends a detailed notice to all media every day that includes editorial guidelines and censored topics. So in that sense, the news there is completely controlled. That doesn't mean that it is untrue, but it will be significantly more biased towards the agencies that are controlling it. Um, in China and in many other countries that want to, you know, are not exactly supporters of the free press or who, are, who see the free press as a threat, um, journalists and certainly independent journalists can often be accused of being spies. They are accused of being subversive or, you know, provoking trouble. This happens in Iran. This happens in um, many you know, in, in, in more places that you might want. Journalists are arrested. They can be put under house arrest for months for publishing stories that the government considers to be untrue, and they can be jailed. Now, it's extreme, and um, we would consider that to be sort of inappropriate and certainly bullying of the press, but it's not uncommon. And it's not even uncommon in the U.S. I mean, a recent president of the United States did exactly that to journalists that he didn't like. And the current Mexican president routinely belittles journalists and public. And he does absolutely nothing to protect journalists that report on the drug trade. In fact, you know, that's not the same as arresting journalists. But right now, one of the most dangerous countries to be a journalist in is Mexico, because the president is very often at the, at sort of essentially at the, 
at the origin of those threats, and he won't do anything to protect journalists. And that will have a significant effect on what news will actually be reported on. Right? It's, it's a brave few that will dare report on the drug trade or that will write things against the president. Now, many of you tell me in your lecture comments that you get your news from TikTok and Instagram. And I just want to ask if you know who owns TikTok and Instagram. Do you know how your news reaches you? The advent of the Internet 2.0, which is the Internet of the users and of the people in the late 20th century, was supposed to be a great equalizer. I mean, think of Wikipedia. This is an amazing user-generated encyclopedia with a dedicated team of volunteer contributors and fact-checkers. What if society could become free from the influence of governments and businesses that control what we know, or at least control the press that we read? And for a minute, that internet existed. And then social media came, and it all went away. Because how do you distinguish a tweet from a blog post, from a video, from a post on Medium or Substack or Facebook or a video on TikTok? or a story on Instagram. It's all flat. It's all on a screen. It's all in your pocket. And it's not clear who the author is. 500 years ago, the town crier was the provider of information. He was in charge of making announcements to the town, and the whole town heard him and heard the same thing. Today, there is no town crier. There isn't much of a distinction between information and entertainment because they're all delivered on the same device. And they're all meant to sell you something. So reality kind of becomes distorted by social media and polarized news channels that, you know, essentially provide us with the information, with varying pieces of information or certain varying uh, takes on events. But it's not balanced. I mean, sometimes the, the best way to know what's happening is to use satire. I mean, if you think of a Saturday Night Live and The Daily Show or sometimes more balanced than most news that you might see on CNN or MSNBC. Although CNN and MSNBC are still way more balanced than the feed that you get on TikTok. And that's because reality has largely become distorted because you get to curate your reality. You get to decide who to follow on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok. And, you know, we essentially all keep choosing people or content producers that satisfy our curiosity, our interests. And while we think that we are merely following an interest when we do a deep dive on YouTube, a lot of what we see is in fact things that are that we're being directed to look at. And we're being directed to look at them based on the many details about our preferences, our age, gender, geographic location, taste in movies, music, restaurants, that the many apps that we use collect and then aggregate so that the feed of the media that you get is targeted to you. And that means that you are ever more tied to a stream of information that you might think is balanced, but that is in fact been designed for you and designed for you to continue to provide data to companies that will continue to use it to sell you things, to sell you ideas, to sell you conspiracy theories and political causes and political candidates. Now, we're in an information ecosystem in which the news no longer means the same thing as it did 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. 
and in which you are as likely to be the product as the ad for yet another vegetable spiralizer or eyelash curler. Much of what I'm trying to get you to do in all the assignments that you do here is to access information that is not targeting you and to think about what might have happened based on information you are you are literally curating rather than having an algorithm do that for you and then get you to click somewhere else. In many ways, before the internet, news sources were pretty limited. That's because there were very few news agencies and what they reported was limited by the space they had and the means of distribution that they had. But in other ways, today, the news is even more limited, but just in a different way. And that's what I wanted you to think about today. Thank you.